and good morning to you all. It's good to see you. I am on quarantine today. I am down with some kind of deal. I don't know. My mom gave it to all of us in the house. So I probably, because I love you, will not be hugging on you today. But if you're not afraid to be sick for about six days or so, then pop on up to the balcony afterwards and I'll hug on you there. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This morning as we wind down 2004, the Apostle Paul will wind down for us this morning this outstanding letter, the second one that he wrote to the Corinthian folks there. His great love for them constrained him to make one last appeal here as he wraps up, and it's an important one. Remember, if you've been with us, he began this letter with a defense of his ministry, his calling, and his apostolic authority. And so it's very personal. It's, he's very vulnerable in the letter. He wears his heart, his emotions on his sleeve. Now, it is a personal letter. Absolutely. But as we read about halfway through, we come to find out that it's not just personal. He's not merely defending himself. But he really has the best interest at heart for the Corinthians, that he was defending himself because he wanted to defend the Corinthian believers. See, there were these apostles, so-called super apostles, that had made their way into Corinth. They came in behind the Apostle Paul, attempting to undermine the Apostle Paul, and he, Paul was not threatened by them. He was not jealous of them. He was jealous for the Corinthian believers. I mean, for the Apostle Paul to watch and receive word of the slander and the attacks that were leveled against him from this church in Corinth that was coming principally from these super apostles, it broke his heart for them in thinking, wow, they've really, they've got your attention. They've changed the way that you think. It's totally inconsistent with who we are in Christ to listen to any gossip or backbiting or someone devaluing or undermining a leader or a pastor or something along those lines. It's just totally inconsistent with who we are in Christ, let alone the evaluation that they were making of Paul was very worldly. It was very carnal. They were judging things like his appearance, his physical appearance. You know, the Apostle Paul was not especially physically impressive. He was not tall, dark, and handsome. He was probably short and not especially good looking. They made fun of his eloquence. He wasn't a particularly powerful orator per se. They made fun even of his affluence. Like, well, he didn't have a lot of money he didn't charge the Corinthians any money. We saw that a couple weeks ago. And so if he didn't charge a whole lot of money, it could be because he couldn't command a whole lot of money, or that's what the super apostles thought. They even evaluated his weakness because Paul went through a lot of trials. Now, I think very clearly that was the enemy seeking to attack Paul and prevent his ministry or try to prevent his ministry from going forth. But without any shadow of a doubt, that gave cause to Paul's enemies there in Corinth to say, well, maybe God's hand isn't upon his life. I mean, at some point, 
You can only take so many physical infirmities and shipwrecks and imprisonments before we wonder if God's really with this guy. And they did that. So they were questioning the legitimacy of his leadership. But the thing is, and we remember this back from chapter 3, he pointed to them, the people in Corinth, as proof of his leadership, of his apostleship. He said, you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. The believers there in Corinth were the fruit of the Apostle Paul's ministry. If you question the apostolic authority of Paul, the calling of Paul, the apostleship of the Apostle Paul, if you question that, then you have to question the very calling as believers of the people in Corinth because they were his disciples. And we know in a way that these uh, Judaizers, as these super apostles were, these most eminent apostles, they were legalists. They were appealing to a broader, uh, more uh, detailed gospel. Paul, he taught you the simple things, the basics, and we're going to take you a little bit further here the, with the rituals and the traditions and some of those things, as false teachers often pointed to in that day. And so they're trying to trip those people up. And Paul, his heart is broken for them along those lines. If you combine the sin, which we know, you think of the Corinthians, you think of sin. Both in First and Second Corinthians, they were known for sin. They were known for their reputation in the community, which wasn't very good as a church body. You combine that with the fact that they were listening to false doctrine. They were listening to false teaching. That's what Paul called it. False teachers, they were listening to false teaching. They were allowing these people to be the leaders in that church in Corinth, even though they were false teachers. And all of that combined, their evaluation of him, listening to false teachers, the way it caused them to be amongst each other, the sin in that church body, all of that would cause the Apostle Paul to question the very authenticity of some of the Corinthians' salvation. And so the last chapter and a half of this book is sort of a test. It contains very, several very hard searching questions. It has some sobering challenges. And there's even a promise that Paul as the teacher would come at some point and check their progress. He says this morning, examine yourselves, test yourselves. And so I will say the same to you, examine yourself, test yourself. You say, why don't you test yourself, pastor? And that's the natural reaction oftentimes when someone says, examine yourself. A lot of times this becomes kind of a mantra, even for an unbelieving world, to say, hey, don't tell me to examine myself. You examine yourself. Don't judge me. Judge yourself. But this was intended by inspiration of the Spirit for each one to take according to themselves. That is, that we are to not be worried about whether someone else does or does not examine themselves, but that we need to take this very seriously. I find, and just so we can get off to the right start here this morning, because it's kind of a challenging subject matter, but I find that people that don't want to examine themselves, that don't want to test themselves, are oftentimes the very people who need to examine themselves, who need the Lord to search their heart and see if there's any unclean thing in you that might be interrupting your walk with God, something along those lines. Paul says, examine yourselves. The ones that do, the ones that will this morning, will leave with a blessing. 
Because when you allow God to search your heart, when you allow him to show you what he wants you to change, not only are you affirmed that he's working in you, which is a great blessing. I don't care what God says to me, where he might correct me or chastise me. If he's talking to me, I'll take it. That means that I'm his child and that he loves me. And I'm all for that. So I want to hear from God. There's a blessing to you this morning if you allow God to speak to your heart. I don't know about you. I didn't really like tests so much growing up. I still have a nightmare where I wake up and I'm supposed to go to the final and I don't know where the class is and I haven't studied. How about you? You ever have that one before? It's brutal. I don't like them. But this is a test this morning that we all need to take. It's an exam that is important. And it's something I think, and it's in the present tense when we get there, I'll point that out to you. It's something we need to do on an ongoing basis. So let's take a look here. Paul here, picking up in verse 11 of chapter 12, he's been kind of brought into this throwdown, so to speak, with these false apostles. He didn't want to have to defend himself. He didn't want to have to boast. But for the sake of the Corinthians, he did. He says, verse 11, I have become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me. For I ought to have been commended by you. They should have been the ones who were commending or boasting about Paul. He's our pastor. But they weren't. They were instead bragging about these false apostles who seemed to suggest or seemed to put out the hint that they were somehow better than Paul. Paul rejects that. He says, for in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. I like that. That's the right balance in terms of how a believer should evaluate themselves in Christ. I'm nothing, but in Christ, I'm not behind anyone. Because in Christ, I can be exactly what he wants me to be. The Bible says I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If God tells me to do something, I can do it because his calling is his equipping. It is not humility to say, well, I'm no good for the kingdom. That's false humility because all that does is limit God. God can do great things. It would be false humility if Paul said, well, maybe you're right. Maybe these guys are better than me. He said, I'm not behind the most eminent apostles. In no way was he. He says, verse 12, truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is it in which you were inferior to the other churches. That is by virtue of the fact that Paul, as he says, says, I was your pastor. How were you inferior to the other churches? Except that, he continues, I myself was not burdensome to you. In other words, that he didn't take any money. Forgive me this wrong. So the only thing that the super apostles did that Paul hadn't done was charge them exorbitant fees speaking fees to take a big salary while he was there now he allowed other churches to support him adequately but he didn't take a dime from the people in Corinth because he didn't want it to be a stumbling block and so sort of sarcastically there in verse 13 he sort of says hey forgive me for not ripping you off because that seemed to resonate with the Corinthians they seemed to think and this was a seed, I think, also planted by the super apostles. Well, again, if Paul can't really charge you big dollars, his ministry must not be worth a whole lot. I mean, there is no such thing as a free lunch after all. 
And so if there's no such thing as a free lunch and Paul doesn't charge you anything, then maybe it's because he can't charge you anything. I mean, nobody, especially today. And this is me being sarcastic. Nobody in ministry today serves God simply because they love God and love God's people, right? I mean, it can't be that simple. It can't be that you really love us, that you would really serve God even if there was no money in it, right? And that is the cynical, skeptical, I think, voice sometimes of this world directed as a, at us as believers in Christ, that they wonder whether we would do anything if there wasn't something in it for us. And Paul combats that. He says, verse 14, Now for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek yours, but you. That's wonderful, isn't it? I don't seek what you can give me or anything that belongs to you. I just, I just seek you. Hard for them to believe that. But remember, Paul had fashioned himself, he had likened himself as sort of a father, a spiritual father to the Corinthians. And so he says there, for the children, and get this, for the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. Did you get that? For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. I timed this text right when my parents would be here so I could make sure that they saw in God's word that my dad has to keep picking up the bill when we go out to dinner at night time. Huh? And my brother's here to witness it as well. It was in God's word, so you gotta keep paying the bill. False teaching, my dad says, false teaching. The children ought not to lay up for the parents, but vice versa. What is he saying? He's saying, look, serving God is kind of like being a parent. You don't get into it for what you get out of it. Now, those of you that are parents would say, hey, I get a lot out of being a parent. No question about that. But that's not why you get into it. And your first reaction when you see that child is to lay down your life for that child. You'd probably die for that child the second they were born, even though you didn't even know them. That's what parenthood is all about. And Paul is saying the same thing. He says, verse 15, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. That's the heart of a parent. I'm willing to be spent for the souls of these people. But you know what else, sadly, is also sometimes the heart of a parent as well? Look at the second half of verse 15. He says, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. And sometimes a parent can feel that way based on, you know, a certain development period of time in their child's life. You can feel like the more you love them, the more they push away for a season. I think they'll come back. I think they'll come back. But sometimes there is that period of time, and it's challenging for parents to go through that. But I think what is clearly evident here is that the Corinthians were taking Paul for granted. Would you agree with that? I mean, have we seen enough so far? This is written by inspiration of the Spirit, so Paul's not lying. And I think that they've taken him for granted, like a selfish or an ungrateful child sometimes takes their parent for granted. You know, and I'm not saying any of your kids are selfish or ungrateful, not at all. But sometimes I think that they think that even if they didn't play Little League Baseball, that mom and dad would still go down to the field anyway. Because, well, that's just what they do. Instead of they do that because they lay down their life and sacrifice for their kids. I read a story of a mom who came downstairs for breakfast one morning. And by her plate 
was a bill from her son. Mowing the lawn, $2. Drying the dishes, $1. Raking leaves, $3. Cleaning the garage, $4. Total owed, $10. Well, the mom didn't react. She just went about her day. And then when he came home, and when he had dinner that night, he had a bill by his plate. And the bill was ironing clothes, mending socks, cooking meals, bandaging cuts, baking cookies, nothing. Love, mom. That's the difference, right? That's what a parent does for a child. But that's also what a spiritual parent is willing to do too. They're willing to be taken for granted a little bit. Now, don't misunderstand me. This is not my sneaky way of telling you all that I ever feel that way because I've never felt that way, not one time. But I will say, just from a pastor to the body here, that if you decide to get involved in ministry here at Calvary Chapel or any other church, just expect that you may be taken for granted at times. I'm not saying that I feel that way. I'm saying that that is something that kind of comes with the territory. You might be taken for granted. You could be gossiped about. Your motives could be questioned. You might be second-guessed. Paul was used to that. He says, but be that as it may, verse 16, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. I don't think Paul is saying that he was cunning. I think once again, he was aware of what they were saying about him. And so this is sarcasm again. Well, I caught you by cunning, like you all say. He's crafty, some of the Corinthians would say. He didn't charge us before, but that's because he's setting us up for the big take. Now, what I think is ironic about that is there were some in the church that were saying, well, Paul doesn't charge us because his ministry is weak and he can't charge us. While others were saying, Paul doesn't charge us because he's setting us up to charge us a whole lot more later on. Those are exact opposites. And in other words, what they're saying is, well, he can't have a good motive for not charging us. So it's either a bad motive or a bad motive. He's either not charging us because he can't, or he's setting us up. It's got to be one of those two things. And one of the things the Bible says is love believes all things. In other words, it means that love believes the best in one another. Agape love, a selfless love, chooses to believe the best in one another. And so I think we have to be careful. One of the things, you're around a church family like this, and we hang out with each other all the time, and we share stories, and we talk amongst each other, one of the things we have to be careful about is speculation, is people judging someone's heart, rumors that go around, things like that. We have to be a little bit careful and be on guard against those things because some of those things, well, a lot of those things, most of those things oftentimes, they're just not true. And we need to believe the best in people. The Bible says that we're not even to receive an accusation against an elder unless it is accompanied by at least two or three witnesses. And that was always the standard, even back to the Old Testament in the law. That's something we're just not to pay attention to very much. And if you do, then you can start to think the wrong things about people. You can jump to conclusions. A harmless little thing. Can you believe she gave me a card at church today? What was that all about? See, you can start to think that way because you choose to think that way or because you're skeptical, you're cynical. Pastor called me, he wants to have lunch with me tomorrow. I don't know what's wrong now. Well, maybe I just want to have lunch with you. <laughs> Did I, verse 17, take advantage of you 
by any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? Again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? Are we defending ourselves again? Or are we making excuses? He says, we speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. The Apostle Paul, again, he's under oath. And he would testify that he did all things for their edification. His sole motivation was soul, S-O-U-L motivation. That's not a bad objective to get to in your walk with God and in your life, that everything that you would do would be filtered by soul motivation. Either I do what I do to reach people for Christ, or I do what I do to encourage my friends or my family that their walk with Christ would be such that they would impact the kingdom for Christ. Verse 24, I fear less when I come, I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. I'm concerned that when I come, I'm not going to like what I see in you, and you're not going to like my response. Lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, and tumults. So it sounds like a whole lot has not changed from 1 Corinthians to 2 Corinthians. And Paul is hoping they can get their act together before he comes. Because like I said, he doesn't want there to be a third, this will be the third time he's going to see them, a third painful visit. Last verse 21, when I come again, my God will humble me among you. What does he mean by that? That he might be humbled if all this stuff, this interfighting, this backbiting, this gossiping was going on that he might be humbled. You know what? What you all say about me and questioning my apostolic authority, you might be right. <laughs> questioning my calling, you might be right because if this is what is produced, this really humbles me. He might be humbled when he saw this. He said, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. If this church when I arrive there the third time, if you all are still in carnality and worldliness, he says, I'll mourn. And the word for mourn is the word that they would use for someone who would mourn over someone's death. And it's almost like Paul is saying, I don't know if he's predicting that anyone's going to die over this. But it's almost like he's saying, wow, so much inner fighting and backbiting and problems are going on there in the church that I wonder if I arrive, I'm not going to find a dead or a lifeless church body. If I'm not going to have to mourn over a bunch of people who are rendered themselves completely ineffective for the kingdom of God. He says, this will be chapter 13. The third time I'm coming to you, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be Established. Like I said, that's from Deuteronomy. Way back then, you need two or three witnesses to establish any kind of a fact. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm not going to listen to the rumors. You all shouldn't listen to the rumors. We're going to go based upon facts. He said, as I've told you before, and foretell as if I were present the second time and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare and that word there, spare, is to spare in a battle. And it's like he's saying, look, I'm now declarating war with those super apostles. 
and anyone who would align themselves with them. And if we have to bring in some witnesses to establish these facts, that's fine. But we may have some church discipline if some of you don't repent. It's pretty strong. He's being bold, but he wants them to have a shot before he gets there to clean things up so that they can fellowship and have a good visit. He says, verse 3, since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, and isn't that sad? I mean, here we are 2,000 years later, and nobody questions whether the Apostle Paul was speaking Christ's truth, not in the church. And yet in the church, they're like, well, Paul, what are your credentials? Do you have an, uh, an accreditation, an accommodation? Who can vouch for you? And that was what they were doing. He says, since you seek a proof of Christ speaking to me, who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you, for though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. So remember, Paul was labeled as being sort of a timid person, quiet. He writes a strong letter, but in person, he's kind of weak. That was the criticism they brought against him. See, the super apostles were flashy. They were flamboyant. They were great in front of a crowd. They had the dynamics down. They had the wardrobe. They had the money. They had it all. They had all of the things that the world looks at today and says, that's success. And Paul says, so what happens is, you've judged me because I'm weak, but I think you're forgetting about something. You're forgetting that Christ, in weakness, went to the cross to conquer sin and death. In weakness. After he was beaten. After... The people turned on him. You know, there are teachers today that I think, if they really studied the story of Jesus, they would find out that Jesus doesn't agree with their theology. Because they would look at a weak Jesus and go, no, that's not what we preach. No, you don't. You don't preach a suffering servant who went to the cross for our sins. You teach a healthy, wealthy, and wise prosperity theology doctrine. And when that doesn't line up, you might look at Jesus' life and go, well, yeah, well, we're not really... We've kind of, you know, had some progress since then, so to speak. Jesus was crucified in weakness. He became the very antithesis of what the world values and respects and thinks is successful. He changed, he shattered the world's criteria along those lines. And Paul is saying, look, in the same way that Christ, you know, he lives in the power of God, he says, but he did it through weakness that he conquered sin and death. When we come to you, we're going to come in the power of God, though in weakness. Because in weakness, as he said last time, I'm made strong. It's in weakness where God has the ability to work fully through me. Because there's less of me and more of him. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. And so anticipation of his arrival, Paul exhorts the Corinthians here, and this is what I wanted to get to this morning. He says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified, but I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. And the word for disqualified there describes something that would be of counterfeit. So you get the idea, right? Just because someone says that they're a Christian, just because somebody goes to church, just because somebody wears a Christian t-shirt, just because they have a, a Jesus fish on their car, a bumper sticker, a keychain, you name it. 
the welcome mat to bless you as you walk across the floor? That was Stephen Curtis Chapman's song. He said, but I cannot help but ask myself, what about the change? What about the difference? What about the grace? What about forgiveness? What about a life that's showing I'm undergoing a change? There should be a change that takes place inside of me if I'm really born again. If I'm really in the faith, if I'm really in Christ, there should be a change. There was a mother who overheard her daughter praying one time, and she prayed this way, Now I lay me down to rest. I pray I pass tomorrow's test. If I should die before I wake, that's one less test I'll have to take. Well, the truth is, when you die, you will receive your final grade. You will. And that will either be a pass or a fail. Whether you really gave your life to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, or not. There are a lot of Bible teachers today that say that hell will be full of church members. I don't know if that's true or not, but it makes sense that people might deceive themselves because they went through the motions of church into thinking that they were saved when they never really had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The story of a young man who wanted to enroll in seminary and officials at that seminary sent for his college transcripts and there was a mix-up because the people at the college where he went to they recalled him they remembered that he was quite popular on campus but there was no record of his actual enrollment no classes no credits no grades and so they figured it had to have been some kind of mistake they decided they would contact the young man so they could clear up the confusion but when they did he confessed he confessed that he had taken the money that his parents had sent him to pay for his tuition and he pocketed it. And so as a result, he had spent four years at the college going to school, but he had never actually enrolled. He went to class, but he audited all of his courses. He attended the college, but he never actually became a student. And similarly, I'm concerned for people in general that they can mislead themselves into thinking that they're going to heaven when up until this point, they're not slated to. And that this goes on because they're coming, they're participating maybe, but they're not really enrolled. They faithfully attended class, but they've not really become a part of the body of Christ. They've audited the Christian life. And we get no credit for that. You know, it's been estimated that a typical student, by the time they graduate from college, will take 2,500 pop quizzes, tests, and exams before they're done. And again, like I said, I'm glad we don't have to do that anymore, but there's one exam I think we need to take, and as I mentioned to you in the beginning, this idea that we should test ourselves or examine ourselves is written in the present tense to suggest that we should do it on an ongoing basis. We need to make sure, as he said there, that we are, quote, in the faith. And there's only one way to know that. If you go back and look at that verse, the second, the third sentence there in verse five, he says, do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? That's the big key there. We need to know that Jesus Christ 
is in us. That's how you know if you're born again. That's how you know you're not counterfeit or disqualified. And what I find is the people who really love God, when they hear that, it kind of it stirs up in them. Am I really saved? And I think that's a healthy thing that we think that way a little bit. If we were going to take a spiritual SAT, a salvation acquisition test, a lot of people would say, check out this first, check out this first, evaluate yourself on, along these lines, evaluate yourself along these lines. And I would say Romans 8.16 says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Instead of looking at all of those things, all of the externals of the faith, if you will, every way in which I might evaluate my behavior or my sin or all of those kinds of things, instead what we should examine one thing and one thing alone, and that is, am I in Christ? Is the Holy Spirit living inside of me? Do I have Christ in me? You know, because if you look at sin, I mean, all of us at some point, I mean, the closer you walk with God, in fact, in between services, Nate came up to me and said, you know, the more I walk with God, the more when I examine myself, I do question sometimes, well, if I was really a believer, would I act this way? But see, that's a healthy thing, and here's why. The reason that's healthy is because dead people don't do that. People that are dead in their trespasses of sins, they don't feel that strong conviction, that strong contrition. They can go and sin or do whatever, and they don't feel bad about it at all. Because the Holy Spirit is not living inside of them. I heard a pastor once on the radio say, you know what, if you feel bad about your sin sometimes, and I wonder if anyone's here and they've ever felt bad about their sin. Well, I'll just raise my hand, that's me. If you've ever felt really bad about your sin to where you're just like, man, I can't take who I am. He said, that's a sign of life. That's a sign of life. That's a sign that you may well be born again. Because again, people that are resisting God, that are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, they don't feel bad about those things. They can do those things with a clear conscience, but you can't. Now, I want to be careful because it is absolutely consistent with my calling as a pastor to teach about the eternal security of the believer. We don't flip flop back and forth between being saved and not being saved. That's not what Paul's suggesting. That's not what I'm suggesting. What he's saying is, what I'm saying is, is it's possible for maybe someone in the room this morning to convince themselves to deceive themselves of something that isn't real. Now, that is something I'll be jealous for you concerning. I don't want anybody to wake up someday eternally separated from God that deceived themselves into thinking they were a Christian when they weren't. I know it's heavy. But what should be heavier than this subject right here? To examine and test ourselves. We need to do that. We need to make sure we know that we know that we're going to heaven. So I'm going to teach on the eternal security of the believer. But it's not my job to convince you of your own salvation. Now, that's where I would go outside of the bounds of my role as pastor and say, no, you're born again, you're saved. No, it's not my job to do that. The Holy Spirit is the one who's going to testify inside of you whether you are or not a believer. And you have nothing to worry about this morning if you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, that still, small voice, convicting you of your sin, bringing contrition into your life when you feel bad about your sin, even prompting you before you sin, don't do it. 
When you hear the voice of the Lord, when he encourages you to do something, when he says, get up, you're going to church this morning, even though you don't feel well, all of those things that he does, that should encourage you. Even when he corrects you, as I said before, when God chastises you, when he says, you were wrong, you need to apologize to that person. That's an awesome thing, because that means you're alive in God. Well, let's finish up this letter here quickly. Verse 7, now I pray to God that you will do no evil. Not that we should appear approved, but you should do what is honorable that we may seem disqualified. Even if you think that we're counterfeit, we're not. But even if you think that, Paul would say, do the right thing anyway. For we could do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. I really don't care what my reputation is, Paul would say. I just want you to be strong in the faith. He says, in this we also pray that you may be made complete. And the idea of completion, it's just like as God is perfecting or completing us, he's begun a good work in us. And the idea is to be fully equipped and be developed as a believer. Therefore, I write these things being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. Finally, brethren, and a lot of times when you wrap up one of these letters, you know, we tend to just kind of put a bow on it at the end, but there's always important insights at the very end of a letter. Even Paul just saying, hey, see you soon or goodbye. These are paramount things. Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. And that's what he just said that my prayer was, that you would become complete or perfected in Christ and pursue that. Be of good comfort. And that's an exhortation for them together to be of good comfort is to encourage and exhort each other in the Lord, to challenge each other in God, but to be comforted, to be encouraged and supported by one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace as opposed to what they had done up until now. Come on, unity in Christ. Live in peace among yourselves. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss, which was in that day kind of like a handshake is today. In fact, in some parts of the world today, a kiss is still a common form of greeting, one on each cheek, right? Now, I don't know that you want to try and do that here. I don't know if I'm straining the text at all by saying that the Apostle Paul would probably be okay with a nice handshake or a one-arm hug or something along those lines. I knew and have had to correct some men who found it enjoyable to go around the church body and getting their hugs from the good-looking women in the church, but those aren't holy hugs. And the key word there is holy. <laughs> All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. And as Pastor Mike prayed earlier, Lord, what a wonderful year to be here in this church, Lord, and to allow you to have your way in us. God, we thank you for what you're doing in and through us as we study your scriptures. Lord, you are completing us. You're raising us up. You are challenging us. Lord, we do need to look at ourselves and examine ourselves. And I thank you, God, for a church body that is mature enough
to hear this and receive it for the important thing that it is that we need to examine ourselves and we pray you do that in our hearts God and I thank you Lord that with that comes an assurance of our salvation but Lord also an that we would be able in you that you'd be able to tell us God how we can change in a way where we would be more effective ministers for your purposes God we just thank you for this wonderful book too what a great book it's so personal that we would be led to think that maybe it didn't belong in your holy canon and sometimes I think God we think who we are because of who we know we are or maybe where we might be tempted to boast or where we might be inadequate or weak like Paul was, that maybe we would find that to have no place in the church. And yet, God, time and time again, you find that you take those characteristics, those specifics within us, and you work those things together, God, for your glory, for good, even who we are. And you use who we are, you made us. And you can do those things with us. You can do all those things. And we can do those things through Christ who strengthens us. Lord, we read last line there about the communion of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray we do nothing to grieve his presence in our life. God, that we would be a church that eliminates gossip and backbiting. That we'd be honest with God, with you, about what that is and our propensity how we're given to those things and that we would cut those things out of our life, that we would be more effective, God, a better, more loving family, that we would get along well, that we would be able to model for this community what discipleship of your son really looks like. So Lord, go before us today, pray a blessing upon those that are here, that you minister to this message to their hearts as they leave here today. And we ask it in Jesus' name.